Many Christians find it easy to criticize other people for breaking the moral commandments, such as have no idols, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, and do not lie. Now, in all honesty, of these five commands I I chose, I don't know anyone even Christians who always keep the first and the last. As John Calvin said, every heart is an idol factory, and it's almost impossible, humanly speaking, to always tell the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. But most Christians don't do those middle three. I'm not aware of too many Christians who, who murder, commit adultery, and commit grand larceny. Now... However, there is one commandment, and I think especially American Christians just do not take seriously enough. And I admit, until about three or four years ago, I broke this commandment every single week. And it is this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the Exodus way it's presented. And it's longer in Deuteronomy, but it starts with... Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. I've put the whole paragraph on your bulletins this morning. So I now am trying to take this to mean that whatever I do, whatever I watch, whatever I read from the time I wake up until the time I go to bed on Sunday morning it all needs to point to Jesus in some way. And I can't tell you how many times I'm tempted to turn on a baseball game or something, but with God's help, I'm not doing that. And I feel that this has sort of changed my life in the last few years. Now, the final two parts of the book of Nehemiah have to do with keeping the Sabbath holy, completely to God. And being in a covenant, a faithful covenant marriage where both the husband and the wife in that marriage are fully committed to obeying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by grace through faith. Now, the story from Mark's gospel demonstrates how Jesus expects his followers to show compassion in his name on the Sabbath. So now let's examine our text in more detail to learn and hopefully by God's grace to be transformed from them. First, Nehemiah observes God's people breaking the Sabbath and then he confronts them for being more profane than their fathers. So we've got some long sentences here, but let's dig through them and find the important points. This is his biography, his autobiography. In those days I saw in Judah men treading wine presses on Sabbath, bringing in heaps and loading them on donkeys, also wine, grapes and figs, and all kinds of burdens bringing into Jerusalem on Sabbath day. And I testified when they sold food. What's going on here? These are people of the Torah. These are the Jews that were not wiped out by the Babylonians. They've come back. They're supposed to be a righteous remnant. 
But what's going on? They're working themselves in their animals. They're bringing goods to market and they're selling them for profit. All three on the Sabbath. Threefold sin. So Nehemiah was so upset, especially, especially selling food for profit on the Sabbath that he testified against their behavior. You see, God's people had forgotten that when God's people keep the Sabbath holy, it keeps them holy. If we do not commit ourselves to the Sabbath, we're opening ourselves up to sin. We need time with God every week. Then he goes on and says, men of Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to Jews. Then I contended with the Jewish nobles. What is this evil you all are doing? Profaning the Sabbath. So what's going on here is something that I think is dominating our American society today. Here they were practicing consumerism on the Sabbath. Foreigners were coming in and exploiting Jews on the day of the week, supposed to be dedicated to God. And the leaders of the Jews were complicit in this. So Nehemiah contended with these leaders with a 5th century interrobang. Now, that's a new word. It's going to be in the Oxford English Dictionary soon. But the way I picture it is is a mother with her five-year-old son where she's told him ten times not to do something. And in exasperation, when he does it again, she says, what are you doing? So it's a question exclamatory. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's contending with them because they should have been modeling that when God's people keep the Sabbath holy, they themselves will be holy. And now he goes on and says, did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring on this city all this evil? And you all are adding more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now this is a Q&A, but not how we're used to a Q&A. It's a question and it's an accusation. And what he's essentially saying is if the Babylonian exile was not enough punishment by profaning the Sabbath in this way, the remnant is going to incur even more wrath. And in this first episode where Nehemiah lays out the problem and confronts people with what they're doing wrong, the very word Sabbath occurs five times. But now after Nehemiah lays everything out, he takes strong action to ensure proper practice of the Sabbath. So in verse 19, he goes on to say, when began to be dark before the Sabbath. And remember, the Jewish day always started at sunset, unlike the way we think of things. So when it began to be dark, just before the Sabbath, the gates of Jerusalem and the doors I said to shut. 
Then I said, will not be opened until after Sabbath. And I stood my servants over the gates. No one will bring in a burden on Sabbath. So Nehemiah now assures that all the entrances to Jerusalem will be locked down on Sabbath. And then he stationed his own guards to enforce this. But people being people, especially people that are not God's people, he says, then they lodge merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares once and twice. So the outside exploiters of the Jews set themselves up right next to the closed gates in hope of quickly accessing the Jews for profit the minute Sabbath was over. But again, Nehemiah, who was a very bold man, says, Then I testified to them and said, Why you all are lodging before the wall? If you all repeat, literally, fist I will send, threatening them with a punch in the face on you all. And from that time, they did not come on Sabbath. So he confronted these camping merchants, threatening to inflict violence on them unless they stayed away on the Sabbath. And it worked. Then I said to the Levites that they will purify themselves, coming and guarding the gates to keep holy the Sabbath. So he's exhorting now these Levites to perform one of their three duties. And last week we saw in chapter 8, and it's in Chronicles, David arranged things under the guidance of God and the Holy Spirit. Levites did three things. They were guards and soldiers. They were singers in worship. And they were also, some of them, dispersed among the people to teach and judge concerning God's ways in living that way. So after they made these offerings to sanctify themselves, they would guard the gates. They would ensure the Sabbath would be kept holy. And and again, in the second half of this Sabbath narration, the word Sabbath occurs five times. Five plus five is ten, a perfect number signifying the Ten Commandments. And the bottom line is God's people who keep the Sabbath holy will keep themselves holy as well. Now, there's a few things I'm just going to explicitly tell you. This is what I feel moved to try to do So may we all be moved to seriously examine our own Sabbath practices so that we do give one day in seven totally to God through Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Never try any of this on your own. We need God's help. But this is God's will. And we'll get into this more in the gospel. And now Nehemiah prays his first of three prayers in our portion in the conclusion of his memoirs. Remember me, my God. Have compassion on me according to thy great steadfast love. Notice what he's doing here. Although Nehemiah did what everyone would call a good work, his petition is not based on that, but God's great love not what he did. This is humility. 
And another thing, and I need to remind myself, I've said this once or twice, I'll throw it in again today. I know my greatest sin is pride. Um, it, It really scares me. But may we too act to promote good practices by humbly petitioning the Lord in prayer. Then we have a little bit of an aside here, but it's very, very important. Nehemiah acts to prevent Jewish men from taking pagan women, mostly as extra wives, praying twice in two different ways. So he continues on in, in, in verse uh, 23. Also in those days, I saw the Jews had literally dwelt with women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uh, And uh, I guess that's about as far as we have to go. This dwelling with, I thought about this, this is what we now call living in sin. They were living with women. Ashdod was a Philistine city. Those were outright pagans. And also, women descended from the two sons that were born to Lot by his daughters, Genesis 19. So I found out something. Living in sin has been going on a long time. This is 445 B.C., people. And then he goes on. Half the children spoke the speech of Ashdod. None knew the Jews' speech. Now, not only were they losing these half-Jewish children, losing the language of their own culture, actually, they were in danger of losing their distinct relationship to God. Again, Nehemiah never backs down from a fight. Then I contended with them and cursed them. Then I beat some men and literally it has plucked their beard their, their beard hairs. Then I made them take an oath by God. Not you all will give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Now, again, this is the Torah. He's confronting their disobedience to Torah. You can look at Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7 because they were living with non-Israelite women. And he made them swear before God that they would stop this disobedience. Now, don't miss this because I think sometimes in Sunday school we get a sanitized version of King Solomon. He goes on and says, was it not because of these women Solomon sinned? In many nations there was not a king like him, beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Yet these foreign women made him sin. And if you look at 1 Kings 11, and I read it just this week, because he loved many foreign women, Solomon worshipped many false gods and idols. So in his lusting after women, all women, despite God's warning through Moses, and there was something written out in what we call Deuteronomy 17, when you demand a king and I condescend to you, God said, this is how your king should behave. 
And one of them was he was to write out the whole Torah of Moses, five books, in his own hand and read it and study it every day, at least a portion of it, to live right. But he's breaking it. He became a bad example of what a godly king should be. Uh, Or, you know, what he should not be. So he's a bad example. Nehemiah continues, To you all will we listen to do this great evil and to trespass against our God to dwell with foreign women. So this physical unfaithfulness, the evil of it, whenever we disobey God's word, it reveals something evil and unfaithful in our hearts. And then he goes on and he names names. A son of Jehoiada, the son of Ali Ashiv, the high priest. He was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and then I chased him from me. Now, we saw Sanballat earlier in Nehemiah. Okay, he was somebody who was from Moab, and he had always been opposing Nehemiah, sometimes with great subtlety and disguising the intents of his heart. Now, I looked up where is Haran or Haran. That is actually the name of one of Caleb's daughters. Um, Caleb's concubine bore Haran to him. You can see that in First Chronicles, the genealogies. And that was the name of the city Sambalat was from. And now, maybe some of you have already anticipated, I'm going to tell us what the New Testament says, which is Christians must not marry someone or anyone who's not also fully committed to God in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 6. And then he goes on and says his first of two prayers in this section, remember them, my God, because defiling the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So because this grandson of the high priest was also a son-in-law of a Moabite, Nehemiah prays an imprecatory prayer, a, a prayer saying, I can't punish, but this is wrong. God You must, you must punish not only this grandson, but the woman he married and her father. And then he says, I cleansed them from every foreign influence and made them to stand the duties of the priests and Levites, each to his work. And for the sin offering of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. I'm sorry, it's just for the offering of wood. Now, I'm going to tell you right away I had to look this up and thank God for a commentary. So first, he saw, oversaw the purification of the Levites. But if you read Leviticus 6, you will see that the flame on the altar for sacrifices to God, it was to burn 24-7. So just think of how much wood had to be on an altar where the top was about nine feet square to keep a fire burning every single day, all day long. And then he talks about first fruits. 
Now, this is not an explicit reference to the Feast of First Fruits, but my mind went right to the fact that the Feast of First Fruits was fulfilled because it was the day when Jesus rose from the dead. So, in a way, certainly now that we have all of Scripture, this final part of Nehemiah, the book ends with a messianic note. And Paul told the churches in Corinth, Jesus is the first fruits because of his being raised from the dead. So uh, again, Jesus is in every chapter according to scholars that know the Bible better than me. But as we come to the end of what Nehemiah did with this moral problem, we must realize, uh, I, I know that So many people are doing it this day, even seniors. But living in sin, even though it's nothing new, it must be confronted, but confronted with a pure and loving heart and faith in Christ's resurrection. Not not with animosity, but pureness and love. And then when his mission in Jerusalem was fully accomplished, Nehemiah said, remember me, my God, for good. He prayed to be rewarded for his faithful service to God. And now let's let Jesus have the last word on Sabbath. So let's look at Mark's gospel, the beginning of chapter 3. We find that Jesus is grieved by a lack of compassion in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then he compassionately heals a man on the spot. So um, Mark is narrating this. And if you've ever wondered, many people think because John Mark was related to the apostle Peter, Peter was probably illiterate in that he couldn't write. So he dictated the gospel that he had witnessed to John Mark. So he says, and he, meaning Jesus, entered again into the synagogue and was being there, man having been withered his hand. And by the tense of the verb, this man worshiping in the synagogue, he had been disabled with this withered hand for a long time. Now we don't know. We know the woman had been bleeding for some 12 years, but he, this was not something recent. And they were watching him, if on the Sabbath he will heal him, that they might bring charges on him. So, even at the start of his ministry, some Jewish leaders were hostile to Jesus. And really what they're doing is they're testing him with this man to see if he would violate their interpretation of the Sabbath commandment. Now, Jesus starts with the man. He's saying to the man with the withered hand having, thou must get up in the middle. So uh, I can imagine being this man. Okay, what's going on here? He calls this man right into the spotlight by commanding him to move to the middle of the worshiping assembly. And here is the key sentence in this passage. He's saying to them, the hostile ones, Is it permitted on Sabbath to do good or to do evil and life 
to save it or kill it? This is a real good question. And as I reflected on this, Jesus is subtly asking this important question. Now remember, Nehemiah had a question with an accusation. He is questioning obvious Sabbath breakers by accusing them. But with his question, Jesus is trying to guide them to the correct answer. And here's the saddest words just a short sentence in this whole passage, but they were being silent. And I've thought about this a lot in the last 30 years. They wanted to be right, right that what Jesus intended was wrong. But through this question, they knew, they knew in their hearts, it is wrong to choose evil over good, and it is wrong to choose death over life. So they knew because they were silent. Their silence was because they were guilty and they had no response. So now we're told, having looked around about at them with anger, He was being deeply moved with grief at the hardness of their hearts. This is something human beings can't handle, but notice that Jesus' anger arises out of grief. So first, he's angry that they do not want a fellow Israelite to be healed, but he's also grieved that their hard hearts are keeping them from loving their neighbor as themselves, the second great commandment. And what Jesus is showing us here is the paradox of someone who has a heart of compassion for all people, all people, those who are downtrodden and even those who are oppressing. So he's saying to the man, thou must stretch out thy hand. He stretched it out and it was restored, his hand. So Jesus commands the man to stretch out his hand in faith. Faith that if he would obey Jesus in this one command, his hand would be healed. Now, God is not explicitly mentioned as the healing person, but he obviously did the healing. And if you just think about it, since Jesus is the one who's speaking, he's God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So with this healing, Jesus made it clear that healing on the Sabbath does not violate the Sabbath command. And and I've read some of the extra-biblical things of the Jewish rabbis, and even in the first century, many Jewish rabbis believed this as well. Those are probably the ones that got converted later. So the Sabbath was indeed made for people to be healed in body, soul, and spirit. Just look up to Mark 2.27, just before this passage. So bottom line, people, let's take this to heart. Let us understand that proper Sabbath practice includes compassionate action to bring healing 
to people who are in need. The Sabbath is for healing, body, soul, and spirit. And if we can practice Sabbath properly, we will have our hearts healed. And that is so, so important. So let's wrap this up. Nehemiah observes both Jews and foreigners breaking the Sabbath. He confronts the profane behavior of the Jews. And then he acts to promote proper practice of the Sabbath. And then he confronts Jewish men living with pagan women. And in all of this, Nehemiah prayed three times, in fact. Years later, Jewish compassion, Jesus compassionately heals a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And this is what I'm slowly learning over the last two or three years, that when God's people keep the Sabbath holy, focus it on him, don't get distracted by anything else, then we can keep ourselves holy. How can we live the way God wants us to live the other six days of the week? Keep the Sabbath holy.